Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the pandemic isn't over, but Ontario's top doctor is on his way out. Are they throwing Dr. Williams under the bus as a political deflection for the Ontario government's pandemic failures? Health Canada extends the shelf life for AstraZeneca vaccine, but are there any risks by doing that? And how much exactly has the pandemic cost Canada? Moshe Lander from Concordia University joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The pandemic, of course, is not over here in Ontario, but Ontario's top doctor is on his way out. Uh, Dr. David Williams uh, agreed last fall, of course, to push back his retirement, but he's going to be leaving the post now at the end of June, and the Ford government already has somebody else lined up to take his place. Global's Tina Trujani has the details. Dr. Kieran Moore has been working as the Medical Officer of Health for the Kingston area for the last few years and will shadow the outgoing Dr. David Williams in the coming days to ensure a smooth transition. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, who sits on the province's advisory table, says Moore has an impressive record. They've only had three deaths in that entire region related to COVID-19. And really, that's a testament to his leadership. Premier Doug Ford has long praised Dr. Williams' leadership during the pandemic, but critics have taken aim not only at his communication style, but his ability to stand up to Ford. In a statement out last night, Williams says it's been an honour to serve the people of Ontario and to guide public health during the worst public health crisis of our generation. He also threw his full support behind Dr. Moore as his replacement and says he's confident he will do an outstanding job. Tina Trojani, Global News. So what are the ramifications of this? Let's uh, bring Richard Brennan into the conversation. Richard, of course, former journalist uh, with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and, of course, Parliament Hill for many, many years. Badger, uh, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Oh, good, Bill. How are you? Good. Uh, the, I guess the first reaction I had, and I think a lot of other people that I've, I've been talking to over the last little, uh, few hours about this anyway, is what took him so long? Well, yeah. I've got a few theories on this. Okay. Yes. Uh, first of all, this is, you know, getting rid of him is like the uh, political version of etch a sketch. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, you got a picture of, uh, you know, Dr. Williams there, and you shake it up, and hopefully he's gone, and, you know, and, uh, and all the problems there with. I think, uh, you know, why they, I believe why they kept Dr. Williams on, and I, I don't want to throw, you know, too much uh, at, his, uh, at him, but the point is that I think they kept him on because he was malleable. Mm-hmm. And that was certainly addressed in, in a report that was done by the Auditor General that pointed out with some of the shortcomings of uh, Dr. Williams. But again, we'll never know, Bill, how many times he made a recommendation. They said, no. We just, we'll never know that. Well, the, the other element to this, too, is... is... <laughs> Maybe to answer my own question about what took so long, uh, the public opinion polls are reflecting that obviously an awful lot of people in the province of Ontario right now don't have a whole lot of faith in the government. And when that happens, as you know, all the years you've been covering politics, somebody's got to be the fall guy. Yep. Uh, and, and the premier's not going to get up there and say, you know what, this is, not, I know he said the buck stops with me, but he's not going to say, you know what, I'm going to resign. This is terrible. I, I just didn't think I was up to the job. He's got to, he's got to cut somebody loose. And, and Williams seemed like, Dr. Williams seemed like the obvious choice. Well, you know, I tweeted uh, the other day that uh, a bus meet Dr. Williams uh, <laughs> because that's what, I, you know, he's been thrown under the bus a bit here. I mean, he, sure. Let, let's not lose the, uh, you know, side of the fact that he was going to retire. So this is not unexpected entirely, but I just think this is so, you know, advantageous for the for the government right now to to get rid of him, and hopefully, people will believe it. All all, all the baggage has gone with him. Well, you know, I'm afraid that we know better than that. There's you know, there's still problems that have to be tackled, and and there's still going to be an inquest into how the government has handled this whole thing. So. But for now, they'll they'll get you know they're getting rid of Dr. Williams and replacing him with Dr. Karen Moore, who who uh, from all you know all reports is a, a very competent person, is well spoken in that. So you know let's hope he he does uh, let hope he does well and and keeps and keeps the uh, public informed. But again, it's it's not them that makes the final decision; it's the well, government. That, when I mentioned that in my commentary at eight ten this morning. I said, ultimately, I mean, the, the premier's words uh, ring true. I mean, he—he's the guy. He makes all the decisions on this. I mean, he can get advice six different ways from sixteen different people, but ultimately, it's his choice to do this—to close the schools, to lock down, whatever the case might be. And, and we don't 
as we found out a few weeks ago, it's very difficult for us to even ascertain what kind of advice he is getting uh, and, and, who's, and who he's listening to at any given time. As you well know, you and I have been talking about this since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there have been all sorts of calls for, for Dr. Williams to be replaced at some point, and, and the Premier did address that, if you recall, a month or two ago, uh, when he says, I don't believe in changing a dance partner in the middle of a dance, especially when he's an incredible dancer like Dr. Williams. Uh, I, I guess Dr. Williams has lost a few steps then, because uh, clearly he's changing dance partners now well the, it, i guess it's frustrating for people to you know to see what's happened or what hasn't happened and you, you're all we're all left with the same questions you referred to in your, your earlier entry and that was you know well, you know it's the government makes a decision the point is we'll never find out what happened behind the curtain you can't FOI, Freedom of Information, you can't, you know, on, on advice to the, to the cabinet, because you can't get it. And so we're, we're, we're just really have to take the government's word for it. And I'm not suggesting that everything the government says is, you know, is a, a load of baloney. It's not true. And we expect, we expect the government, we expect the premier to make the final call. That's his or her job in this case. But, boy, it would be nice to know what kind of information he was making that call on, wouldn't it? Well, and we saw an ev uh, some evidence of that, I guess, earlier this year. You know, lockdown or no lockdown. And, and of course, you know, the Premier decided not to initially. Uh, and uh, the, the numbers just went off the map, of course. They spiked, and he was forced to actually do the lockdown. And we, at that time talked to a number of the people that are on the science panel and they were frustrated because they said this is not what we asked them to do this is not what we advised it, it, it you know we we said this way and he went that way uh, and you know a number of them actually even dr uni who we're going to talk to in just a few minutes here the director of that panel was, was at one point considering resigning uh, you know under the assumption look at no sense of me giving advice here if nobody's going to follow it and listen to me uh and that's one of the first things i want to ask dr uni in a few minutes is that channel communication better now than it was back in in january and february but there seemed to be a major disconnect uh, between what the government was doing and what these experts were telling him. And uh, Dr. Williams, of course, is the, he's the chief medical officer and is until the end of this month. Uh, I would have been a lot more comfortable had he stood up and, and, and said, um, I disagree with the preview. This is not what we should be doing. But you're right uh, to your point about him being malleable malleable rather uh he just seemed to agree with almost everything the premier said and i just I, I it just seemed to me insincere well you know you have to look at dr williams i mean he he strikes me as, and you know i mean i don't know the man personally but he certainly strikes me as a quintessential bureaucrat and he's not he's not going to make any waves and this is a time unfortunately i think it was time to make waves and say here's Here's what we think. We've told the government this, and the government just poo-pooed it, ignored it, whatever. And, and, and somebody to come out to the public and say, this is my thoughts on something. I've advised the government on this. It's up to the government to decide, but I'm telling you, this is what I said. And we, we didn't have that. You know, we, we have from, you know, from some on the panel and some people, you know, on the periphery of the, of the panel saying, saying that. But it would have been nice to hear the MOH or say, or their provincial medical officer health, say, look, at, this is what I told them, but they didn't do it. And that's unfortunate because then we're, again, once again, you know, the public is left in the dark. There are two things that really stand out uh, as you look back on, on the way Dr. Williams has handled a lot, an awful lot of this stuff. Uh, one, and it's going back to the, the first couple of months of the, of the virus when it was really starting to fester, uh, he seemed to be one of the last experts to acknowledge the fact that it was an airborne virus. Uh, everyone else that said, you know, we're learning more about this. And I remember, wash your hands, wash your hands, because, you know, you could, could be on a doorknob. And, and, and then the experts were saying, no, 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 this is airborne. That's where it's being spread. Dr. Williams did not acknowledge that until well into the spring. And the other one that he's going to have to wear, and certainly the government is too, is there's the terrible treatment in long-term care facilities and the protocol that was established. I mean, you compare what he did on a provincial basis with what Dr. Moore did in the Kingston area. Uh, he, he shut them down right off the get-go, and he's established a protocol that did a great deal to mitigate the impact of, of the virus in that area. 
province-wide, it was, it was, well, we know it was a horror show because we had to call the military in to try to get it. And how many reports have we had now? Three already that talk about what a terrible job the province and, and the medical officer did. Well, you're certainly right about Kingston and the, King, and the Kingston area. Uh, and Dr. Moore was kind of the Nova Scotia of Ontario, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Because he really, he really did shut things down and he took the necessary steps from the advice and, and in the scientific, you know, advice that, that was out there at the time to do what he had to do. We were always, other than the doctor, you know, the Kingston area, Dr. Moore's position on things, we were always a step behind. In mm-hmm. everything, like you said, you know, about airborne, we were a step behind in that, the mass, we were a step behind in that, and it was so on and so forth. So, so we were always playing catch-up. And, 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 you know, a virus like this, it's hard to play catch-up because you, you're a step behind. And that was the unfortunate position that Ontario seemed to be in right from the get-go. Uh, hopefully, you know, keep your fingers crossed, you know, maybe we've finally gotten to the point where we've caught up and we're, we're starting, to, starting to see light at the end of the tunnel and... I think we may be, but boy, you never know with this with this uh, with this pandemic what's going to be the next you know, the wave. Well, and we just found late last week, of course, about another variant that they're concerned about. We'll try to get some more details about that on the show today. Uh, and then there's the vaccination program. And I know that there have been a lot of critics about the way the Ontario uh, government rolled out their vaccination program, you know, doing it by age demographic, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, because it seemed to, again, run contrary to what Dr. Williams and what the Premier had said uh, before the vaccine was available. And that's going back to last fall uh, when they said, look, at the most vulnerable are the ones that we're going to have first in line here, besides the first responders. And, and I know people that have pre-existing conditions, uh, cancer patients, I, I think, and things of this nature, that still have not received their first shot, and, and figured, hey, wait, just a second, that's not what you promised. And, and you know, there's a, an awful lot of questions here. And, and you're right. I mean, the, you can't keep looking in the rearview mirror, but I think there has to be some accountability here for the way things went. The fact that somebody was you know, has cancer and hasn't had their first shot, so the fact that there's still elderly out there that haven't had their first shot, is unacceptable. And, and you know, I know that I can't blame the I can't blame Doug Ford for everything. You know, there's there's medical officers, you know, there's health units across this province. Why there are the people like you just spoke of who haven't had their shot is that's a head scratcher. I just do not get it. Well, and that's where you're looking for leadership, right? I mean, you, you, I, I understand what you're saying here. You know, the, the local medical officers and, and those departments, of course, are responsible to a certain extent for the rollout. But you're looking for leadership either from the medical profession or from the political end of things. And uh, Dr. Williams wears the, the whole thing about the medical profession. You're looking to him. He's the chief medical officer. Uh, they should be getting their direction from him. I mean, if he had mandated right from the beginning, this is what we're going to do, this is how we're going to do it in, in all four corners of the province, uh, who knows if it would have been a better outcome. I mean, other jurisdictions that did that got much better results than we did here in Ontario. No, but I would argue that there is a certain uh, sense of autonomy by the local health units. I mean, Dr. Moore is a perfect case of that. Yeah. He took, he took the bull by the horns and said, this is what we're going to do. And there are other health units and that didn't and just waited for somebody to... You know, lead them by the nose to to whatever point we're going to. He didn't. He didn't do that. So why did the rest of them just wait to be told what to do? Good question. And, and it's one of the things that I guess you know we're going to be looking for answers for. I want to look a little further down the road. I know we're just about out of time here. Uh, we've had an auditor's report on this. We've had the independent report that uh, the, the province commissioned. Uh, we had the military report on this, and, and all scathing uh, in, indictments, really, about how this thing was mishandled right from the get-go. Uh, do we have long memories about this? I mean, it, you know, the ex- election's not, well, it's a year away, I guess. It's next June. Uh, the next provincial election anyway and, and i don't even know what the status of the virus is going to be by then it may still be with us in some sh- form we don't know that yet uh but there's there's a, a growing sense of, a, of of i think a need for accountability here and, and uh you can't wish this away you can't simply say we're going to replace the chief medical officer maybe people forget about all, all the problems that we had I, I i think this is going to linger for quite some time well bill i don't i i don't know if i agree with you there entirely 
because I don't. Uh, if we get back to some kind of semblance of normalcy, I, I tell you, it people will just forget about it. We'll say, you know, okay, that was then, but this is now. So, you know, we're, we've got our vacations. We're, you know, our family's okay, and you know, but we're back to work. We're back to work at our offices and everything like that. People might just forget. You, you kind of hope they don't. Not that I'm suggesting or taking a position here one way or the other, but you can't forget how what's happened to this province as a result of this pandemic, and and some of the and the pitfalls that we've had, you know, during this during this whole process. I hope they don't forget because I think I think governments of all stripes need need to be reminded that we're you know we're not in a position we're going we're not going to allow this to happen again and if it happens again we expect more from our governments well we saw that last week with uh, i guess it was the ipsos poll that was released uh, showed the government's the four government's popularity rating has, has gone down even further but so also have the the liberal and ndp popularity ratings yep. uh, decreased so that's that's essentially the ontario voters saying a pox on all your houses we don't like any of you well they just don't have the time now for politics quite frankly you know, people have got so many things going on in their lives right now. They're worried about getting their next shot. They, and, you know, and what, what's happening in Queen's Park is, uh, is you know, not at the top of their uh, to-do list. Absolutely. Uh, as always, Badger, thanks so much for the time today. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again okay, soon. Okay, you too, Bill. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care. Richard Burnett, of course, uh, giving his uh, perspective on what's going on with the, uh, the appointment now of a new medical officer of health for the province of Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Late last week, of course, the Premier talked about his rollout plan, about uh, trying to relieve some of the pressure on small businesses, etc., uh, and a number of other issues. And, and during the Q&A with the media afterwards, uh, there was a lot of talk about whether or not schools should reopen again. And the Premier at that time said he was concerned about reopening schools, given the presence of a more contagious variant of COVID-19, as well as the relatively low rates of vaccinated teachers and students. You know, I don't want to rush this. If it takes a couple extra days, so be it. This is a massive decision. This is a decision that's going to affect every single person in Ontario. So the Premier went on to say that he wanted to get more advice from his uh, legal and uh, certainly from his uh, health care experts uh, before making a decision. Well, the uh, health care experts have responded. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Peter Uni. Dr. Uni, of course, is the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. You have consistently talked about the, the concern about schools and closing of schools and the reopening of schools. Uh, as, as in your response to the Premier's request for more information about this, uh, is this just, a, in, in your mind, a reiteration of what you've been telling him or advising him all along? Yes, I believe so. You know, we, we strongly feel um, that schools should be the last sector to close and the first to reopen. That's really quite important. And Ontario has been the province that has closed schools for the longest. And uh, what we just see is that the, uh, the harm there is considerable. So if we just talk about the reopening strategy, we believe it's important just to prioritize schools first. If we talk about indoor space, you know, outdoor space is a completely different ball game. Mm -hmm. uh, but here we are going to the indoor space again and the concern about uh, whether or not the work that the province had promised they were going to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis ventilation and things of that nature, uh, whether or not that's been completed. That really kind of opens that debate up again, doesn't it? Yeah, well, look, it's this is very difficult. We talk about uh, all the infrastructure, etc. Are you conscious that do miracles? But what we know is with cohorting, with masking, with just optimizing things as much as you possibly can, um, you can actually get quite far. And the point here is we're talking about, you know, three weeks of schools um, and then uh, there will be a, a, the, uh, the end of the academic year anyway. So these three weeks are probably just okay if we carefully monitor the situation and if we just careful with uh, not opening prematurely other indoor spaces. In the clip we played just a couple of minutes ago from last week, uh, Dr. I'm the premier expressed some concern about uh, the relatively low vaccination rate among students and teachers. Is that a concern for you as well? 
Well, first of all, we need to be aware of that the number uh, regarding teachers that uh, he quoted is probably not quite right. Nobody can tell you what the right number is because, you know, the information about teachers is is, uh, is uh, self-reported and only had to be given in certain parts of the vaccine rollout. So this means we probably underestimate the proportion of teachers quite dramatically who are vaccinated at the, and uh, nobody knows exactly, but it's relatively safe to default back to what we know about uh, you know adults being vaccinated of the same age well and that's one of the things that i was concerned about at the time i'm sure you're aware we had a first come first serve clinic in hamilton on saturday and sunday this past weekend uh and hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of people lined up to get their their second shot of the astrazeneca vaccine uh and i noticed a couple of them that were teachers and i mean you know but they're not identified as teachers it's just citizens are going there so your point's well taken it's very difficult to actually ascertain what that number actually is Correct, correct. So we shouldn't, you know, be uh, guided, you know, by, by this 40% number, which is certainly an underestimate. And again, we also need to be aware of we're on the right trajectory with this pandemic. That's great. And we know that we actually were able, thanks to cohorting and masking, going out as much as we can now, you know, with the nice weather and uh, just optimizing ventilation as good as it gets, that we can keep schools relatively safe. We just need to be aware of, we need to get these kids back into the system, connect them to the system. This is much more a problem for uh, parents, um, you know, who live already in socioeconomically difficult situations, parents who, uh, you know, are, are uh, uh, essential workers in non-healthcare settings, etc. And especially there, we need to be careful that we don't even increase inequity by keeping schools closed. It's a time for innovation here, too. I can remember, I guess, last year, Doctor, uh, you and I had a conversation about some of the different ways that other jurisdictions were approaching this, including this time of year, uh, outdoor classrooms. Uh, and I mean, today's a lovely day in southern Ontario. If, you know, if the kids were in school, you know, why not, uh, you know, do it outside and, and, and good the learning in that way? That seems to be the best of both worlds. So there, there are some possibilities there, aren't there? Oh, as long as there aren't any black flies, you guys know that better yeah. than I do where they are. Uh, of course, there's a lot that can be done and we need to be creative and not panic right now. But of course, we need to be really careful, especially with B1617 from India. That is a challenge. But right now we're in a much different situation than in February. We need to be aware of that. We're much further with the vaccines and we just need to be really nimble and do the right thing now with the vaccine rollout. Are you concerned about the efficacy of the, uh, the vaccine with that new variant? Yeah, well, it, it we don't know, you know, there is data from Public Health England that probably will underestimate the efficacy after one dose a little bit. And it's very reassuring about uh, two doses, which is great. And what this means for us in any case is that we now are looking very carefully into where we see the uh, B1617 already and whether we need to go there, you know, earlier than in other places for second doses to make sure that we protect not only people in the places where B1617 is actually existent now, but also the province, because what we want to avoid is that the B1617 is now spilling over into all parts of the province too early. It will probably take over not only the province, but it will as much as B117 before from the UK actually took over. This one eventually will take over too. So we better just are smart with how we roll out the second doses. So with that in mind, Doctor, I assume that you're on side with the, the, the protocol that the Premier talked about last week about accelerating those second doses, moving up the timetable? Yes, yes, that's really important. And one thing, of course, is age is a really important factor there. So it's absolutely okay to start with 80 plus, 75 plus, etc. But the other part really is what we know is that Peel is suffering most now from B1617, you know, originally found in India. So therefore, we need to look very carefully into what we can do and whether it makes sense to move uh, with second doses back to Peel so that we protect the population and the province there. Uh, you know there's going to be a new medical officer of health, of course, uh, the announcement that was made over the weekend uh, that uh, Dr. Williams will be stepping down at the end of this month. Is, is it time with, with a new person in charge there to, to maybe reevaluate some of these strategies, Doctor? Yeah, well, I think that's an excellent choice. And I was very, very pleased, you know, to, to, uh, to hear that. Um, uh, Kieran's track record is just excellent. And we just now need to uh, just uh, transition well. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's a perfect timing just uh, to, to have him 
look into the situation we're in. I don't think that we, right now on the trajectory we are, that we need to change things fundamentally. It's just that we need to get the vaccine rollout for second doses right because of B1617. That's the only thing where we need fine-tuning. In your response to the Premier about the, about the school closures, though, I was really glad to see that you went into great detail uh, about, uh, I think, what's a very important part of the discussion here, is that's the mental health of students uh, and the families of those students as well. And that's, that's I, I think, a, a major factor in this discussion. They didn't touch much about it at the, the Premier's press conference last week, uh, but you and, and your colleagues certainly feel it's very important. Yes, indeed. You know, what we probably see in our data is just the tip of the iceberg. And that's the challenge here. Nobody knows exactly how bad the situation is. We, have, we hear a lot, you know, just uh, of uh, episodic evidence. But the data just show us there's a real problem there. We see it pre uh, especially with uh, eating disorders, but not only. And we really need to address that. We need to connect these kids to the system. And especially, you know, with families who are more vulnerable, etc. We just need to look into that and just keeping schools closed and potentially you know having other priorities for reopening of indoor spaces would just be the wrong um, thing to do right now this is collateral damage i mean when they talk about the impact that the, the virus is having on hospitals we tend to immediately think of icus and and, and the critically ill people uh, but but these mental health issues as you say eating disorders and things of this nature uh, are, are not just issues that need to be dealt with now but they're not going to go away uh, you know the minute we say okay that you know we can open up again uh, is are you concerned about that and the, and the lasting impact that this this scenario is going to have Oh, for sure. You know, when we, not only that part, but uh, that's one important part, but also, you know, all the delays we're having with care, etc. This is really, really uh, a continued effort that we need to have for months and years, basically. You know, this doesn't just, you know, we, we, we snap with the finger and uh, everybody is vaccinated and we go back to endemicity of, uh, of, uh, of COVID-19. No, this will all continue and we need to be really, really clear about that, that for the next one, two, three years, we need to invest a lot of efforts to get things right again. Part of that, of course, is going to be, uh, I guess, the, the pressure that we as the public put on the government to make sure that they do maintain those standards and uh, they don't look at this as a, as a budgetary issue that can be rolled back at some point in the future. Uh, but the, to your point, though, about uh, you know moving up with the vaccination program, uh, there was some concern, as we know, uh, some weeks ago, Doctor, about AstraZeneca and some of the impacts, and they actually put a, a, the pause button on that for a while. Uh, it's back. I mentioned the, the free clinic they had in Hamilton this weekend. It was the second dose of AstraZeneca that they were handing out. Uh, but there was a concern at that time of course about uh, the best before date for this now uh, they just announced late last week that that expiry date has been extended for one more month uh, asking you know a number of people questioning well uh, why was you know why was it a concern a week ago and now the same stuff is, is going to be safe are, are, are we maintaining those standards or are, as the public can we be assured that that those vaccines are going to be as effective as possible I mean, I haven't seen all the data and I just, you know, know what you know. Um, their reasoning, Health Canada's reasoning makes perfect sense. Um, keep in mind, I'm not competent, you know, to talk about shelf lives of vaccines just in particular. But when I look at, at uh, the same, you know, from, uh, from the perspective just of regular drugs, it makes sense. You can model that. You have data that just actually gives you much more information, granular information over time than what was originally assumed. And it could well be that Health Canada really just has a lot of reassurance also from from that data coming from the UK, for example, about exactly that part. What probably would, wouldn't hurt is that Health Canada would just make transparently available all their data that they base this decision on. But uh, to be honest, I don't have any red flag whatsoever regarding this month's extension. There are some uh, statistics that have come out of the UK, and I know you were talking to us about that a couple of months ago, that you're going to be watching for that data very closely. Uh, and it's about the efficacy of, well, the three that we use here, the Pfizer, the Moderna, and, of course, the, the AstraZeneca. Uh, very, very similar results for efficacy, only a, a couple of different percentage points of efficacy, no matter which vaccine you get talking about you know the challenge now is uh, again b1617 from india their things are a bit different you know and we need to be aware of that that again we're having really great cards with the modern and pfizer vaccines there um, and uh, this will uh, will be tremendously helpful also for the future to get B1617 just uh, well under control. So we have a better situation than, for instance, the UK that uh, that has mainly AstraZeneca. And uh, the fact 
that that uh, Pfizer and probably also Moderna are ninety percent effective after two doses against B one six one seven will be very helpful. What about what about the rollout here, Doctor? We, you know, we mentioned the hockey game in Montreal. There were a number of people, twenty five hundred people, I guess, allowed there. Uh, we just heard that the, some frontline workers are going to be allowed to go to the Leaf game tonight in downtown Toronto. Only five hundred and fifty of them. Uh, are you comfortable with that second dose uh, and that protocol as that proceeds uh, to start allowing smaller crowds, at least in in, in public places and, and events? Yeah, well, it depends. Right now, we just still have a, a really high force of uh, of infection, but we can't, you know, continue to close down everything forever and ever. Now, the, one of the points is really important: the clear distinction between two dose complete vaccination and just a single dose. In the presence of B1617, one dose is simply not enough, even more so than before. So that's certainly great news. The other part is, again, you know, it would just really be helpful to make this clear distinction. Also, when we have a bit larger gatherings between indoors and outdoors, a combination of two doses of the vaccine plus outdoor space is a really a safe bet now. That's okay. Indoors, you know, we still have uh, residual uncertainties there and we just need to be a bit careful. You know, these 500 healthcare workers that you were referring to or how many these are, this won't make much of a difference if they're distant well, etc. But we just shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. Right now, uh, there are very few people who have had second doses and we shouldn't have these discussions if it comes to first doses. A first dose right Right now, especially with the new variants coming again, I know it's boring. Another variant now is just simply not enough. It, it protects us against severe disease. That's great. But we can still transmit. And we actually don't know now with B1617 how well protected we are against severe disease yet. So this is all work in progress. Well, and as they panned the crowd at the game in Montreal on Saturday, I'm sure you noticed as well, Doctor. I mean, mask wearing was still dominant and, and and required in situations for, so that's that's a piece of the protocol that i guess isn't going away anytime soon for indoor activities anyway no i would hope that we actually are wise there and perhaps also wise it in other places in the world because again you know we're just uh, in this in this really important transition phase where we should just try doing the right things because there will always be these curveballs but the curveball we're seeing now with the variant from india is much less of an issue for us than before because we're much further in the vaccination rollout this is excellent news is there a chance on that? I know this getting off, you know, we're talking about the vaccinations and then it's not really into the realm of epidemiology. But, uh, you know, we had talked about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine and, and there seems to be some concerns about that, too. Are you confident that there's going to be more availability as we go through the summer to, to vaccinate more people in a, in a more rapid fashion? Do you talk about Johnson and Johnson now or more in general? In general, I'm very confident, you know, also what we see with the vaccine supply, thanks to the Feds, you know, their negotiations, it starts to pan out really nicely. And right now, I would really bet more personally on AstraZeneca and Moderna. That's the way to go right now in the situation we're in. I right now lack data. Um, I'm not sure whether there's anything out there about uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine regarding its effectiveness against B1617 from India. So that's an important consideration too. We will find out about, about that later. But I would bet now just on Moderna and Pfizer. Well, the two that you just mentioned are tried and tested, I guess, and there's a comfort level with that, isn't there? Mm. And they're also, you know, really not only very effective, but they're also also really safe. This all really helps. It's not that the AstraZeneca is not safe. We know that it is, but it has this glitch that the Johnson Johnson might share or will share to a certain extent about these rare but serious uh, thrombotic events. But again, it's really uh, important to emphasize, you know, here also on the radio, that after the second dose, the risk of these thrombotic events is lower than after the first dose. Right now, we assume it's about five to ten times lower than after after the first dose, which is important to realize, too, for AstraZeneca. It is absolutely reassuring. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure and uh, always insightful to get your uh, comments on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Take care. That's uh, Dr. Peter Uni, of course, the director of the Ontario Science Table and uh, professor of medicine and epidemiology at the U of T. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just how much money have governments spent during this pandemic over the last 17 or 18 months? What kind of an impact is it having on the economy? You really get mixed messages looking at statistics uh, and, and sometimes contradictory uh, messages about some of these numbers as well. Trying to make some sense of it all. We're so pleased to welcome uh, back to the program Moshe 
Lander, who is a senior economist and a lecturer at Concordia University. Most thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. My pleasure. Let me ask you, as, as I'm looking at some of these over the weekend, some of these numbers, uh, you know, the, the, the numbers are staggering, of course, about you know, the amount of government spending on, on relief programs and things of this nature. Uh, the unemployment numbers are still very, very concerning, but there are an awful lot of people that are doing quite well all the way through this. How, how do you analyze this, and, and what do you see happening here? You're right. It, it, it's so hard to make sense of what's going on with the numbers, right? Because you have to work with a counterfactual, which is almost impossible to create, right? What would have happened if there hadn't been a pandemic, right? So would mm-hmm. the housing market have collapsed? Would we have had a recession? Would Bitcoin have taken off the way it had, right? And so to try and figure out what government spending would have gone on during that time, and then try and say, okay, now what government spending did take place, you need to look at what's the marginal impact to really figure out what did the government spend on the pandemic. And that's really just a little bit of kind of belly button navel-gazing guesswork that goes on. And so, you know, the, the headline number that uh, that both of us saw over the weekend was that $1.5 billion a day. Um, I, I mean, it's probably, let's say, in the ballpark, but I don't know that it's necessarily, like, that precise a number. When all this started, and, and we didn't at that time, of course, know how long this was going to be going on, probably still don't, I guess, to be fair about this, uh, we were told at the time by the government and, and the finance minister, was Bill Morneau back in those days, uh, that, yeah, this is this is unprecedented, we get that, but you know something, once this is over, uh, things are just going to go back to normal and the economy will rebound and you're going to see lots of economic growth. Uh, are, are we still that optimistic? I think so. Um, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of damage that's going to be left in its wake. And I do think that it's going to take, say, you know, a decade, if not maybe longer, to kind of fix the government finances and get things back to, say, where they were pre-pandemic. But, you know, where we've talked about a lot of businesses that are lost, the fact is that those people still exist. The inventory and the buildings and the infrastructure still exist. And so it, it might take a little bit of reimagining, but the fact is that, you know, restaurants should be able to bounce back. It's just they're not going to be able to recover that lost income from the down period. And there is, the, I guess, the variable here that we tend to forget sometimes. You know, the, there may well be a bounce back, but money lost is money lost. You can't make that up, can you? Some things, yes. Some things, no, right? Like you can't make up for a lost haircut, right? So it's not like you're going to say, well, I wasn't able to have a haircut during the the stay-at-home order, so I'm going to go have two this weekend, right? Um, Those things can't be made back. But there are certain things like, say, where you would use your disposable income for, say, going out, nightlife, and things like that, where you could say, hey, you know what? I've been cooped up for the last 18 months. Uh, Rather than just going out once every other week, I'm going to now go out once a week uh, to kind of make up for lost time. So there are certain aspects that can bounce back almost completely where they can recoup that money. Um, just there's some industries, like I said, you know, haircuts, things like that, where one-offs are one-offs, and you can't do much about that. But there are some businesses that are doing quite well. I mean, you mentioned real estate a couple of minutes ago, and, and they're obviously just going crazy right now. Uh, other industries seem to be doing well, or at least holding their own. Service industries, industries rather, you know, the restaurant business that you just talked about, travel, things of that nature. Uh, what, what kind of recovery are you going to see from those? You know, it, it's it, it's a little bit mixed. It depends on what's the nature of the service sector, right? So, you know, I think everybody's itching to get back out to a bar or a restaurant or to go enjoy some time with friends. Uh, you know, I think everybody's watching in Toronto and Montreal what happens tonight to figure out which fans are going to get to go see, uh, you know, second-round hockey and things like that, right? So there, there are going to be industries there that, that bounce back quite strongly. But I think there's going to be some industries where we kind of realize that we don't need to do it in person anymore. I think everybody's kind of learned the joys of ordering Amazon and just waiting for things to show up at the door where you don't have to go out to the mall. And so maybe there's certain retail places that are going to find that, yeah, they're not coming back from this thing. Or when people do go back, they're going to say, I don't remember this being quite as as arduous. Or I I, I seem to remember it uh, more favorably than it really is. And and those industries might find themselves in a lot of trouble. What comes to mind for me, for example, like movie theaters. I, I guess a lot of this is going to depend on, on consumer confidence and, uh, and consumer spending habits, I, I would think. Uh, again, I've heard two schools of thought on that as well, that, uh, that you know, yes, we probably have a lot more money than we would have had ordinarily because we have, there's nowhere to go and nowhere to spend it in, in so many different cases. But are we going to be that free with it after that, or are we going to think, hey, I, I kind of like having a, a few more zeros in my bank account? You know, I think part of it, too, is going to be what are the, the, the guidelines that we're given as we come out of it. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I seem to recall hearing uh, Anthony Fauci uh, last month saying that 
the idea of wearing masks and social distancing as a kind of ongoing sort of winter exercise is not inconceivable. And so if we're talking about that every winter now, this is going to be kind of the, the new way of things, uh, then you could very easily see consumer confidence rattled in the wintertime. Now, whether that means that consumer confidence then spikes in the summer because we're going to get it while we can, um, you know, you could you could start seeing these kind of broader shifts in the way that the, the economy operates, right? But don't forget that at the end of the day, um, you know, even something like this pandemic is going to ultimately appear as a blip uh, on the screen, much if you take a look at the, the Depression, which was much longer and much deeper, uh, over 100 years, it also kind of looks like a blip on the screen. But it's interesting to see the rollout on this and the impact that it's having. And I know when we started this whole thing, and I think you and I had this discussion months ago, uh, the comparator that a lot of us used to, to gravitate to was the last recession in 08, 09. Uh, but everybody seemed to suffer in that, and, and the government had to roll up their sleeves and get involved in this. Uh, this one, it, it, I guess technically from you know the, the number standpoint, Moshe, it, it, it's, it's a, a recession, depression, whichever you want to call it, how extreme it's going to be. But there's a lot of folks that are doing quite well here, and some industries are doing quite well. I mean, some industries are paying huge bonuses uh, to some of their executives because of the work that's going to be going on here. We haven't seen that in, in economic downturns before, have we? Um, yes and no. I mean, there's always going to be winners and losers in, in anything that we do in life, right? And, and so I, I think that one of the things that uh, gives us maybe a certain amount of comfort in a recession is that there's probably more losers than there are winners, or that the people who win um, maybe aren't already at the top of the income distribution or the wealth distribution, right? So I, I think what's maybe um, a little more disconcerting are, you know, when we hear how much uh, Jeff Bezos' wealth has gone up or when, you know, I was reading about Melinda and Bill Gates and their divorce mm -hmm. and that even once they split their wealth 50-50, Bill Gates is still better off now than he was at the beginning of the pandemic. That, that type of thing is, is shocking. And, and so those are the types of things that, are probably going to make people mad. But if you hear that, hey, in a recession, somebody was able to fill in that gap in, in the economy and did well from it, I think people say, well, good for them. I, I think it's now it's, it's who are the winners, and we're kind of already viewing that they were the winners to begin with when times were good. How did they manage to continue to win when times were bad uh, that, that maybe bothers us? Let's talk about the employment numbers. And, and of course, they've spiked, and, and a lot of that is in the service industry that we talked about. Uh, are those jobs going to come back? Uh, I mean, just because a restaurant opens its doors, or, or a bar for that matter, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they're going to jam the place every night. and doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have to bring everybody back on staff initially anyway. Yeah, it's going to be a slow slog back. And part of it is going to be influenced in part by how fast does the government withdraw the support payments for businesses mm -hmm. and for individuals, right? So you could imagine that if the government were to announce tomorrow that, okay, starting uh, July 1st, everybody's cut off and figure it out yourselves, I think you're going to find that there's going to be a lot of people that maybe race back to work, uh, even if it's at reduced wages, right? Uh, but if the government says, look, we're going to continue to play this out with some form of support going on into 2022, uh, some people are at the margin, they're going to be incentivized to say, well, what's the rush? I may as well find the right job for me or the right living conditions or the right mix of in-person and, uh, and at home uh, that fits the lifestyle that I now want to have. So I think those numbers will bounce back eventually. It's just a matter of part government policy and part uh, necessity is going to drive it. And again, the speed with which that happens, I guess, is going to be problematic. I know the uh, the story that I was reading over the weekend talked about long-term unemployment, which uh, they define as something that's 27 weeks or longer, and the huge increase that that's had. But uh, that's is that going to be considered a blip again as we look back on this a few years from now? It, it will. Um, but the thing is with long-term unemployment is that once you kind of reach that 27-week point, um, it, it's not like the cutoff line, but once you kind of reach there, your job prospects start to drop and, and rapidly because the likely reason that you were unemployed to begin with was that you were lacking the necessary skills to keep up with the way that the economy was moving. Sitting on the sidelines in the absence of retraining or some sort of support program that's going to help you gain those skills it is probably not going to make you more relevant six months later, right? And so I think what the government's going to have to start doing then is, is changing the way that they're providing these support programs to we need to find who those long-term unemployed people are. We need to try and find a way to get them the necessary training to operate, say, in a world where the Amazon distribution centers are going to replace modern retail 
uh, and figure out how to make sure that people can move as quickly and seamlessly into those new industries. That's going to really help with that long-term unemployment number. In the absence of that, uh, it, it could be something that, no, just remains for, for a really long time and never recovers. Mushi, what are we going to expect of government going forward? You talked about all the the relief programs, and uh, the feds have been pretty good about stepping up and, and even modifying some of these to try to accommodate some of the needs. Uh, but are we going to be relying on government and expecting government to spend more money? I mean, you talked about some of the deficit numbers, and we just mentioned the the 0809 recession. Of course, Stephen Harper was the prime minister at the time then. Uh, they had a relief package too, but it only amounted to about $63 billion over a couple of years, uh, which must have killed him inside because Stephen Harper, of course, was a fiscal conservative and believed in small government. I remember talking with Jim Flaherty, his finance minister at the time, and it, it's, it's, I said, this has got to really be bugging you guys to do this. But he says, yeah, but it's necessary. You know, and I'm sure that was an interesting conversation between Flaherty and Harper at the time. But you compare that, though, and it's small potatoes compared to what's going on these days. Is, is this the new normal now that governments are going to be throwing money out the door like they have over the last 17 months? You know what? I, I don't necessarily think that's going to be the new normal because uh, mixed up in all of this is that constant reminder that there is an election coming up somewhere sometime in the near mm-hmm. future, right? And so I think that this is really going to be one of those things that, you know, the, the media and the voters really need to hold uh, politicians accountable for. What is your post-pandemic fiscal plan going to look like, right? And so, you know, if a, a party wants to come out, you know, those small government fiscal conservatives want to come out and say, yeah, well, we'll look to balance the budget in five years. That's maybe too aggressive or too optimistic. If this is going to be the new normal and expected generation of this, that's not optimistic enough. So I think that they're going to have to compete in that middle ground for how are we going to get out of this in, say, 10 to 15 years? And what are the various sorts of spending adjustment plans that they're going to do to try and, you know, help people transition through this new normal, but at the same time, get us out of a mess that could take generations to pay off in terms of, you know, higher taxes on our kids and things like that. So I, I, I don't know that this is the new normal. I think it's a matter of this will become the basis of the upcoming election. You're going to get an awful lot of angry voters, though, whichever government or whichever party says, okay, we're cutting you off now, uh, because you kind of get used to that extra income or that, that, that safety net, I guess, to a certain extent. And uh, there's going to be a hue and cry, I would imagine, for that. But you're right, the plan has to be to get out of this, and you can't do it quickly. I mean, other governments have tried to do that and, and, and paid a price for it as well. But if you're talking about a 10- to 15-year cycle to try to get back into that, there's an economic cycle within that 10-year frame, isn't there, Rose? You know, And there's going to be downturns, there are going to be upturns in the economy through that, that's really going to have an impact on whatever plan the, the government decides to go for. Um, absolutely. And so, you know, what, what I'm reminded of is in the early 90s, the, the plan to kind of get us uh, off of inflation. You know, anybody in the 1980s will recall the, the inflation rates that we had in Canada. While they weren't necessarily third world country sorts of numbers, they were, by Canadian numbers, kind of staggering to hear you know, 20% inflation and 25% interest rates. But, you know, we were fed a steady diet from the Bank of Canada of, look, we're going to bring this number down to X percent this year and Y percent the year after and Z percent the year after. And as they built up their credibility, it made it easier and easier to cycle down to this kind of low inflation world that an entire generation has gotten used to. So I think whatever government it is, is going to have to set plausible targets where they can get buy-in from people that, look, we're going to bring the deficit down from 300 whatever billion dollars to 200 billion dollars. And when they can deliver on that, then people are going to be much more comforted that, hey, even if there is a recession, the fact is that the government has a plan. It, that's why I'm saying that if they're too optimistic and they miss that target because there was some unforeseen economic event coming in the next five to ten years, uh, then all bets are off. And that's when people are going to start to look kind of out for themselves, uh, maybe at the expense of what's best for the, the broader economy. And, and that would just make it that much harder to achieve the target. Paul Martin was the finance minister during a lot of that period of time, of course, and uh, was credited to a certain extent with bringing the country back in order. I think we actually were described, I think, by the uh, the World Bank as a third rate, for, third world uh, economy back in those early bad old days, of course, of inflation. Uh, but there was a lot of cutting went involved in that. So governments are going to have to be pretty strict about their spending habits. Uh, but you have to contrast that, I would think, Moshe, but the, the, the feeling I'm hearing from an awful lot of people is that, look, at, uh, what, one of the lessons we've learned from this whole exercise here is that we did not invest much in the way of health care and preventative things to do with our health care system right now too and I, I guess there's going to be a demand for governments to pay more attention and probably pay more money for that sort of thing for sure and you know even within one generation where you're talking about Paul Martin remember that's now almost 
30 years ago. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, it, if you take a look at life expectancy and that quality of life, even once you adjust for age, right? You know, back then we would say something like, you know, 50 is the new 40. Now we're saying like 80 is the new 60. And we're talking about people that are living uh, past 100 and it's not making, you know, the news on the weather report on NBC, right? So the fact is that healthcare totally needs to be reimagined in this country because pandemic, no pandemic. It, it's a totally different demographic that we're looking at, and where Canadians aren't having the same number of kids that they used to. We're talking about smaller and smaller tax bases that are going to have to pay for people that are living longer and longer, but also, uh, you know, better lives. But we're also seeing at the same time that there's certain diseases, Alzheimer's and uh, the, the you know, brain disorders and things like that, that weren't existing 50 years ago, in part because people weren't living long enough for those things to become large in numbers. So. You know, the government's going to have a, a very difficult balancing act to, at the one hand, try and reduce spending, but at the same time, spend smarter on whatever it is that they are putting money into. Are we back to that con concern? I mean, the old pyramid thing about pensions, for instance, and, and government spending in that regard. Uh, yeah, because I remember when they instituted the plan, I mean, you know, okay, retirement age was 65. Uh, but I think the life expectancy for males back in those days was only about 69 or 70. Uh, so you know, you weren't expected to live much past retirement, so no big deal. Uh, and there's always going to be a lot more taxpayers. And as you say, that pyramid is inverted now, where there's a lot of folks in, uh, you know, as that plus 65, plus 75, plus 85 demographic that are still waiting for that government money, and there's fewer and fewer people contributing to it. And, and it's not just the, the inverted pyramid that's the issue, too, right? When you're retiring at 65, those were mostly from jobs where it was partly because of physical decline and the jobs required physicality. Mm -hmm. Now, when most of those jobs are service sector, when they're dealing with people, uh, the brain isn't deteriorating at 65 in the way that the body might be deteriorating at 65. So the fact is that when you're pushing somebody out the door forcefully at 65, they're taking with them a wealth of knowledge and experience and connections and contacts and how to interact with people and replacing them with some pimply-faced teenager um, <laughs> who doesn't have that experience, right? So you're actually weakening the economy to a certain extent by pushing them out. And that's one of the reasons why millennials are complaining that they're having such a difficult time finding a job. It's that, you know, where you used to have a brawny 19-year-old who could come in and replace that person in their 50s, now that person in the 50s uh, is running rings around the 19-year-old because they have a wealth of experience of how to operate within a service sector. And so I, I, I think that we're going to see things like the retirement age change or slowly phased back into the 70s or even eliminated entirely. But remember there, too, while it's good for the economy, it's one of those things that, hey, if you're a few months from retirement and now you're told that the goal line has been hoofed on you, that's not going to win votes. And we're you know, middle-aged to senior citizens are the more likely voters, they're not going to go for a policy that's going to move that goal line further away from their their desired goals. So, uh, again, I, I think it's going to be one of those things that a government's going to have to very delicately balance how to make sure that they keep people in the economy and operating and producing value rather than trying to push them out and then support them on programs that could be going on for 30, 40 years if they're living to 100 fascinating times always great to get your perspective and, uh, and add some clarity to this motion thanks so much for the time today anytime look forward to the next one take care Porsche Lander of course uh, from uh, Concordia University the Bill Kelly show weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML the Bill Kelly podcast is available on Apple podcast Google podcast or wherever you get your podcast from you can also listen to the Bill Kelly show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.